0: Well, after 18 seasons, Coach Cleveland Stroud finally led his high school basketball team to winning the school's first ever Georgia State Championship. And as you could imagine, the school was electric. Stroud, Coach Stroud, and the players, they were the heroes. This was the talk of the town. And yet, several weeks later, Coach Stroud In doing a a normal review of his players' grades, he discovered that one of the third string players on the team had failed the semester. Now, according to state rules, if a failing player participates in a game, the team must forfeit the results of that game. And sitting at his desk, Coach Stroud's heart just sank. Because in one tournament game leading up to the championship, Having such a commanding lead, Stroud, wanting to give everyone playing time, entered this player in the game for all of 45 seconds. What would he do? Well, Coach Stroud never flinched. As soon as he discovered the player with failing grades, he notified the authorities, he revoked the school's championship, and he said to the press that my players' championship is not as important as their character. Now, of course, I find that an incredible story, as, you, as I'm sure you do as well. But stories like that are the exception, not the rule. We live in a world of compromise. We live in a culture that seeks the path of least resistance in every situation. We avoid conflict. We want life easy. We want to put it on cruise control, have no speed bumps, have no difficulty, have no issues, at least as few as possible. And yet that's not the world we live in, is it? We live in a world with things like COVID. We live in a spiritually lost world. We live in a world that throws us curveballs, a world that tests our faith with difficult dilemmas within us and outside of us that simply cannot be avoided. And the question is for us this morning is that when put to the test, whether it's a temptation you're facing, a health issue or some challenging ordeal that God brings into your life, will you be faithful to God, or will you flee to the path of least resistance? Enter the book of Daniel. Daniel is living in a troubled time. The book of Daniel, verse 1, verse 1, it just launches into action, and it launches on a very sorrowful note. The book of Daniel begins with God bringing judgment on an idolatrous people, on Judah. And as the book opens, you see Jerusalem is invaded by Nebuchadnezzar, and some of its young nobles are exiled to Babylon, which is the capital of Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom, some 900 miles away. And though Judah deserved this judgment, not all in Israel were faithless. Some, like Daniel, still worshipped Yahweh. But the question of Daniel is what will happen to faith in a foreign land? And so the book of Daniel, it's a call for God's people to trust him. And chapter 1 provides really a great picture of this, namely, that even in the darkest, bleakest situation, believe this, God is still on his throne. God has not abandoned his people, and in fact, all things move according to God's sovereign and merciful plan. We'll see that this morning. Our main point is that in troubled times, don't compromise. Instead, be faithful to God's word so that even in difficult days, His mercy shines through you. This morning in Daniel 1, we'll see four truths for troubled times that I pray strengthens your confidence in following Christ no matter what trial comes your way. The first truth, we'll dive right in, is that when it seems God is losing, know He is Lord. That has not changed. Read with me verse 1. One Actually, the first two verses. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God. And place the vessels in the treasury of his God. So in the first few verses, Daniel, he sets the historical scene, and, and while we can't unpack all of it, understand that what happens in verse one of Daniel 1 has been about 800-plus years in the making. Nebuchadnezzar's first siege of Jerusalem happens in 605 BC. That's Daniel 1:1. 1, 1. But why do I say 800 plus years in the making? Well, because ever since God took his people out of Egypt, think back to Moses' time, the Lord has been warning Israel. Just listen as I read Leviticus twenty-six, fourteen, and following. The Lord says, but if you will not. So this is Moses speaking to the people of Israel. But if you will not listen to me and will not do all these commandments, if your soul abhors my rules and you break my covenant, then I will do this to you. I will set my face against you and you will be struck down before your enemies. I will bring a sword upon you, break your supply of bread, destroy your high places and cast your dead bodies upon the dead bodies of your idols. So the Lord made it very clear what would happen to Israel if they turned to other gods. And though God's judgment in the Old Testament is mercifully delayed, the idolatry and the warnings, they only continue throughout the Old Testament. In fact, not only do the warnings continue, but they get increasingly specific. God doesn't throw out generic prophecies like fortune cookie prophecies that can apply to anyone at any time. You know, I, I, I see a, a bad turn of events in your future. no. No, no. God is, is being really specific with his people to try to wake them up. For example, Jeremiah 25, verse 8. Just listen. The prophet declares in advance. Listen how specific this is. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, Because you have not obeyed my words, behold, I will send for Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, my servant. The whole land shall become a ruin and a waste. These nations shall Shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. And so understand, before Daniel 1, God had already warned Israel of the consequences. He's already named the conqueror. He's even given the duration of the judgment 70 years. In fact, there's even more. He even tells Hezekiah 100 years earlier exactly what Nebuchadnezzar would take with him back to Babylon when he invaded it. 2 Kings 20, the Lord said to Hezekiah, Some of your own sons who shall be born to you shall be taken away, and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. Now this is just amazing. The fulfillment of these prophecies, in other words, what we just read in Daniel 1 verses 1 and 2, is exactly what the Lord said would happen. And I would just ask us, right, do you think your Bible is just a random collection of string together spiritual sayings to, to just encourage us wherever we want to crack it open? No, the Bible is God's story from eternity past to eternity future of his plans and his purpose to bring glory to himself in this world and in all things. And to prove that the scripture is the word of God, to prove that he is Lord, God consistently tells the future and then brings it to pass exactly as he said. I just, I love these verses. Isaiah 46, 9 and 10. The Lord says, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. What makes him so different? He says, I declare the end from the beginning. And from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. And so the Bible is not a book of educated guesses. No, the Bible is, is God's word. It contains certainties today of what tomorrow holds. And so if, you, you need to believe this, but you need to read this book. You need to base your decisions today based on what God says will matter tomorrow, and not only tomorrow, but for all eternity. You see, Daniel is showing us we we ought to be relieved that God is in control. Somebody once told me this. They said, The sovereignty of God is a wonderfully soft pillow. And I think what they meant is that when you believe that God is sovereign, you can sleep better at night. He has it. He's in control. Someone else said, you may not know what the future holds, but you know who holds the future. I find that incredibly encouraging. Daniel 1.1 shows us that all things are going according to God's word. And so just in that verse alone, we, we have the setting. We, we have the scene. We have the what. Nebuchadnezzar, he's invaded Jerusalem. God said this would happen. But verse 2, it tells us the how. How did this happen? How did this come about? Well, verse 2 says this, And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. In other words, by all human appearances, Nebuchadnezzar was unstoppable. Prior to to coming to Jerusalem, Nebuchadnezzar had just won the Battle of Carchemish where both Assyria and Egypt's armies came together to try to stop him. He just ran over both of them at the same time. And yet Daniel says that the only reason Nebuchadnezzar laid a finger on the people of God is because the Lord himself gave them into his hand. And the next act in verse 2 really sets up the rest of this chapter. So, so having overthrown Judah, put it under siege, Nebuchadnezzar does something strange. He takes vessels of worship from the temple in Jerusalem. And in verse 2, he brings them to the house of his God. He brings it to his God's temple. Now, now what's the significance of that? Well, conquering kings, they would do this to make a statement. My God beat your God. I think people used to say on the playground, right? My dad can beat up your dad. Right, my my dad's stronger than your dad. Well, this is what Nebuchadnezzar's doing in a, in a, in a big boy kind of way. He's saying, my God just invaded and beat your gods. Your God is like antlers on a wall in my God's basement. He's just a trophy of another conquered God. Now, if you remember, biblically, 1 Samuel 5 The Philistines once tried to pull this move. Remember, they took the Ark of God and they put it before Dagon, their God. And what happened to him? Well, in two days, he was fallen over, crumbled to pieces, and all the people were busting out with tumors. And so what do we learn from all of this? Well, just be reminded, saints, there may be times when it seems God is losing There may be times when it seems God is absent from your life. There may be times when it seems God has overlooked your cause. But nothing is further from the truth. Proverbs 21.1 says, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. He is Lord. He is in control. The second truth we're going to see is that when the world crowds in, resolve to never compromise. In verses three through six, Daniel himself gets into the story, and it's not a pretty introduction. Daniel is a teenager. He's likely 14 or 15 years old when this happens, and and even rabbinic tradition says that Daniel was a descendant of King Hezekiah. He's one of the royal youths In other words, Daniel is a teenager who has everything going his way. He has his future ahead of him. He's got it all set up. Everything's going his way. And yet in verses 3 through 6, Daniel is kidnapped. He's deported. He's made a eunuch. And he's given three years of Babylonian brainwashing. And why why does Nebuchadnezzar do this? Why does he do it this way? Well, he's smart. He's pretty savage, but he's also smart. You see, to win over a conquered people, to make a people pro-Babylonian, what Nebuchadnezzar would do is he would take the cream of the crop from his conquered nations, he'd re-educate them, and then use them as pro-Babylonian diplomats back to the homeland to bring the rest of the people along. In other words, if the common people saw their former future nobles and royals embracing Babylon then the rest of them would go along with it too and so what does Nebuchadnezzar need to do he needs to make Babylonians out of Jews and that demands a total renovation that's what we see in verses three through eight I want to point out four aspects to Nebuchadnezzar's brainwashing scheme the first is in verse three which is isolation Notice that Nebuchadnezzar does not retrain these boys in Jerusalem. No, he brings them 900 miles from home. Think about it. These are teenagers being ripped from their homes. Think how terrified, how vulnerable they must have been. And for us, do we we not all become more susceptible to sin when we're alone? This is Satan's tactic Satan would love nothing more than to isolate you. He'd love nothing more than to disconnect you from the church, to distance you from fellowship, to discourage you and your sin. He'd love nothing more than you to just live your own little life in your own little bubble with no accountability, just isolate you. Isolation is deadly. Proverbs says only a fool isolates themselves. So Nebuchadnezzar isolates these boys in Babylon. In verse 4, we see he indoctrinates them. He sends them to the University of Babylon. He's going to give these boys a a whole new worldview. And Babylon, for what it is, it was kind of like the the Boston of our day. Babylon was the intellectual center. This was the place of, of learning and advancement. And we need to be clear that much of what Daniel learned in Babylon was morally okay. Much of it. At one level, Daniel was being trained for a new job. And as much as Daniel may have wanted a religious exemption out of Aramaic class or, or architecture class, that wasn't, that wasn't possible. But the problem with the learning in Babylon, though, was that the Lord was removed as the basis of truth. The Babylonians, were, they were deep into astrology and magic arts. And no doubt, Daniel was exposed to, to this and influenced by it. And, and with this learning, this new education came pressure to adopt a new worldview. Just speaking personally to an immature 15-year-old, so I'm not, I'm not talking about Daniel, but referring to myself, the 10th grade me, this can be incredibly confusing My 10th grade biology class messed with my head. (laughs) My teacher was sold out to atheism, to evolution, to naturalism, to all of it. And as a young Christian, I praised God that I didn't walk away from him. But I did feel the pressure to start blending what I read in the Bible with this new framework I was hearing there. And this pressure is nothing new. It may not be evolution for you or, or whatever... But it's nothing new. We're being confronted. We're being called to conform to the world's way of thinking. And saints, suffice it to say that we ought to be guarding what we let in, guarding our intake. And I'm not just talking about our kids. I'm talking about all of us. Daniel was forced to learn a new worldview. Sometimes we just invite the garbage right in the front door. We just welcome it right on in. May we be on guard. Third, Nebuchadnezzar indulged them, gave them all kinds of indulgences. That's something we'll come back to in a moment. Fourth is a total re-identification. I've already mentioned that Daniel was made a eunuch. Right? Just think of the shame that was involved in that. We never hear of Daniel taking a wife. We never hear of his family or his kids. That was taken from him. But if that wasn't enough, being indoctrinated, isolated, mutilated, look what happens in verse 7. Daniel's even given a new name. Verse 7, we read this. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. He already had a name. No, he gave them new names. Daniel, he called Belteshazzar. Hananiah, he called Shadrach. Mishael, he called Meshach. And Azariah, he called Abednego. This was just another attempt by Nebuchadnezzar to smother these boys into their new identity under new gods. Daniel means God is my judge. And I just want to say that even though we don't learn a lot about Daniel's parents, it's evident by these boys' names that Daniel had godly parents. Daniel means God is my judge. Belteshazzar means Bel, who was likely the son of Marduk, the chief Babylonian deity. Right? You'd love to be named after him. That, that means Bel, protect the king. Hananiah means the Lord is gracious. Shadrach, who, which is his new name, means command of Aku. That's the Babylonian moon god. Mishael means, is a question, means who is like the Lord. So Meshach, his new name, means who is what Aku is. I mean, that's just mean. Azariah means the Lord is my helper. Abednego means servant of Nebo, the vegetation god. How do you think Daniel would respond to this? Don't you think Daniel would be a little bitter toward God? Isn't isn't Daniel allowed to question God, be angry at God? Isn't he allowed to be a little bitter for the way his life has just been turned inside out and upside down? Verse 8 begins like this. But Daniel resolved. Daniel determined. Daniel settled in his heart. That though he lose everything, he is going to be faithful to the Lord. Verse eight says, but Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. There was a line Daniel was being tempted to cross that would compromise his devotion to the Lord. Name change, new language. Daniel didn't resist any of that. But when it came to consuming the king's food or consuming his wine, Daniel drew a line. And the question is, why? Why that? What about the king's food and the king's wine would defile Daniel? Now, i would first just have you note this, that Daniel, the author, seems to go out of his way in this whole chapter to emphasize this thing, that it is the king's food and the king's wine that was being given to these boys. And you'll see why that matters in a moment. But while part of Daniel's reasoning, it could have been related to Jewish dietary laws, I'm convinced that there's one primary reason Daniel resists this this food and drink. And I'm also convinced there's a second very closely related reason. And I say that just to understand it's not like God needs to give you two reasons in order for you to to obey him. No, that's not the point. But the fact that there are multiple issues with this food and wine, I think, only elevates just how greatly Daniel's stand was needed. The primary reason Daniel resisted this food and wine was because the food and wine was devoted to idols before it was consumed. They're really long and not very interesting books that detail this ancient Near Eastern practice called feeding the gods. This is not only what kings did, but but we can learn why they did it. One historian wrote this, quote, the food offered to the deity was considered blessed by contact with the divine and capable of transferring that blessing to the person who was to eat it. So the idea is feed your gods and by that by by that act they bless your food and drink then you immediately consume the blessed food and drink and that conveys the blessing onto you. Well in Exodus 33 verse 15 the Lord specifically warns Israel against participating in a practice such as that. For Daniel to consume this food in the presence of those who sincerely think that it's blessing them from a false god would be to go along with their false worship. And I'm convinced that that really fits the point of Daniel chapter 1. Namely, there's a contest going on between these, the Lord and these false gods. Nebuchadnezzar thinks his God is stronger, his God beat the Lord, but we'll see by the end whose God is actually able to bless. In fact, it's not a coincidence that the answer comes through a test involving food. The point for us, though, is that Daniel draws the line where Scripture draws the line. God's word is all you need to know to make a decision. At least that was true for Daniel. But second, in addition to avoiding the worship of a false god, I believe Daniel's also guarding himself in a subtle yet no less serious way. Just think about all that's being thrown at Daniel All at once, and did I say already, he's 15 years old. The world was crowding in on Daniel. Think about Daniel's situation. You have the most powerful monarch in the world, Nebuchadnezzar, attempting to erase your faith. But come on in. Sit down. Have a steak. Here's a glass of wine for your problems. Your parents never gave you any of this. Your God never gave you this. Life's good in Babylon. Follow us. Trust me. I just want you to listen to Proverbs 23, verses 1 through 3, a text that Daniel may have had in mind. It says this, When you sit down to eat with a ruler, observe carefully what is before you, and put a knife to your throat if you are given to appetite. Do not desire his delicacies, for they are deceptive food. You see this king is using worldly influences to win Daniel's heart and don't think the same thing couldn't happen to you today. But Daniel sees right through it. How was Daniel so prepared? Brothers and sisters, he was a man filled with the word of God. I don't know what they taught in Daniel's youth group, but whatever they were doing it was awesome and it was working. They were giving him the word of God. No, in fact, we don't know anything about his youth group, but we do see the influence in Daniel, God's grace through godly parents. These are, Daniel had parents who didn't know the last day they would see their son, but they clearly made the most of every moment they had with him when he was with them. How are we doing as parents investing the word of God into our kids? Well, one commentator I think really captured well, again, this whole scene. He said this, quote, Daniel was forced to be in Babylon, but he wouldn't let Babylon into him. Daniel was obedient to God's word and he guarded his heart. Was it good food? Yeah. Would his parents ever know? Whether he ate it or didn't? No. Was everyone else in Daniel 1 going right along with it? It seems like they were. But Daniel's faith didn't have a price tag, he would not compromise. And let me ask you this morning are you making compromises? Are there clear commands in scripture that instead of obeying the Lord, you're living in disobedience or you're towing as close to that line as you can? I love what the Puritan Thomas Brooks said. He said this, quote, Satan always presents the bait, but hides the hook. You want to end up in ruin, then stop trusting God to know what's right for you and start listening to yourself. Start making compromises. Again, Brooks continues so clear. How do we avoid compromise? How do we stay clear of sin? Well, here's a really profound thought. He said this. The best course to prevent falling into a pit is to keep the greatest distance from it. I almost could have came up with that. (laughs) Our flesh is weak. We are vulnerable. We are under attack. We need by the mercy and grace of our risen Christ to flee from sin. And now all of this is is good and fine, but you may be wondering, what about me? I haven't always fleed from sin. What about everyone in this room right now who isn't Daniel? Maybe right now you're thinking of sin in your life that you've been tolerating or compromising. Is there any hope? The gospel says yes. Is your sin a problem? It is. Your sin is not measured by how small or big you think it is. It's measured, in fact, by the glory and greatness of the one you have sinned against. And that God, the one whose law we've broken, he hates sin. He will not approve of sin. He will punish sin. And yet the glory of the gospel is this, that God was pleased to make your sin problem his own sin problem on the cross. God sent his own son, Jesus, to face the wrath towards sin that was aimed at you, that was aimed at me. God aimed that wrath at his only son, the Lord Jesus Christ, the only one who never compromised The only one who never sinned, who perfectly obeyed the will of God, and yet Christ was crushed for sin once for all time, paying the price necessary to save every compromising sinner who would trust him. Are you trusting Jesus? You're not Daniel. I'm not, Daniel wasn't Daniel. Daniel was a sinner too. We need grace. This is the kind of grace that comes from Christ that wins us away from the world and gives us boldness like Daniel to live for our king. Moving along, we see the third truth, that when you need to stand, be steadfast and shrewd. Verses 9 through 14, Daniel's convictions now become actions. And we learn from him here how to stand for righteousness. And two qualities he he displays as he stands for the truth, namely steadfastness and shrewdness, or you may say persistence and wisdom. First, his steadfastness. Look at the last half of verse 8. We read, therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs, and the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king, who assigned your food and your drink, for why should he see that you were in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age, so you would endanger my head with the king. Now I find this a little surprising because the first thing we were told is that God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of Ashpenaz, the chief of the eunuchs. But by the end of verse 10, we see that we're we're at stalemate. There's an impasse. Ashpenaz likes Daniel. But what else does Ashpenaz like? He likes his head, like attached to his body, still on. If Daniel resists the food and gets weak, then Ashpenaz, he also looks bad. And so as much as He likes Daniel. He can't move forward with Daniel's plan. And so what does Daniel do? Well, seeing God close the door, Daniel gives up because he realizes it wasn't God's will for him after all to obey his word. We can just go home. No, not at all. Daniel is resolved to obey God. Just think about this. Even over this issue, over passing up really good food think about this was Daniel just longing do you think for the day when he could make his big stand when he could post his 95 theses over not eating delicious steak is that the issue Daniel wanted to die for probably not and yet regardless of the issue Daniel could not and he would not compromise I heard this Said this week, the martyrs of church history didn't get to choose which truth they died for. Think about this in our day. If you are a faithful Christian, you don't get to choose the hill you may die on. We stand in a long line of godly men and women who have suffered to uphold every truth in this book. This is the word of God. We're not going to be rude about it, but we will be steadfast in obeying it. We will be resolved to proclaim every one of the life-giving lines of this book, regardless of what it costs. And so Daniel, he just finds another way. He actually drops down the ranks and proposes what would be a private test. And here we see his, his shrewdness, his wisdom. Verse 11, Daniel said to the steward... Going to verse 12, test your servants for 10 days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. Just notice Daniel's posture. Is Daniel complaining? Is Daniel playing the the oppressed victim is he starting a protest about Babylonian intolerance of the Hebrew diet? No. Daniel is firm in his resolve, and yet he's also friendly. Notice, too, that Daniel keeps this test a private matter. He says, 10 days, give us vegetables, and then you, that's singular you, just the lower-ranking steward, tell us who's God, bless the food, and then decide if what you see is acceptable. This food test between Daniel and his friends, this is private. This is between him, the steward, and his friends. In other words, Daniel 1, we shouldn't leave today learning how to diet with Daniel. <laughs> that, that's not the main thing Christians should take from this text. Neither is the Daniel fast, or 40 days with Daniel, or the Daniel cure, or the Daniel plan, or you can even buy, you could have it tomorrow, the Daniel plan cookbook. I just hold on to your money. This, this test was a temporary, private, and ultimately a miraculous event. As we think of Daniel's posture again, what, what I said was it's possible to be firm and friendly. Is there a time and place for getting out the old hammer and starting a worldwide reformation? Yes. But is there also a time and place for calm and quiet obedience to the Lord? Is the purity of the gospel at stake for the entire world? No? Then maybe put the hammer down. Maybe try to engage with this world one soul at a time in truth and in love the way Daniel did. I think sometimes we we think, oh, we got this awesome thing called social media. That means I can reach everyone. I'm just going to blast sermons and Spurgeon quotes to the ends of the earth, and everybody's going to get saved. Well, maybe, but there's, there's nothing wrong with that. But what's the impact? Do you think it'd be a greater impact to have one relationship with an unbeliever where they hear of your Christ from your own lips, where they see your life, just like this servant did in Daniel 1. You see, God is working through Daniel's resolve to actually show his mercy. Daniel's in a troubled time, and yet Daniel is making a stand that he could, he's making a stand that could cost him everything, and yet he's doing it winsomely. And guess what? Through Daniel's steadfastness, souls get saved. I'll spoil it now, but at the end of chapter 4, guess who comes to the Lord and worships him? Nebuchadnezzar. One pastor said this, Sometimes God brings hardship to you to display his mercy to others. What a great thought we see is that when God's even in the hardship... The last truth we see is that when God sees faith, he shows his favor. Just as the Lord said in 1 Samuel 2, those who honor me, I will honor. Daniel and his friends are honored by the Lord because of their faith. In verses 15 and 16, the Lord miraculously delivers them. The Lord triumphs over those false gods and, and understand in triumphing, Daniel still had to eat vegetables for three years. Right, so, so don't let that pass by you. The Lord's favor doesn't always mean you get out of vegetables. He, he still had to endure. But what does he experience? He experiences blessings that far surpass any of that. His, his faith is strengthened. His life is preserved. His conscience is cleared. He's living rightly before the Lord. In verses 17 through 21, they just pile up the ways that God not only blesses Daniel and his friends, but God prepares them for what's ahead. Remember the parable of the talents. I guess we'll probably be coming to it pretty soon in Matthew 24. The master says to the faithful servants, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will now set you over much. God will now set Daniel over much. He gives him learning and skill and wisdom. We read, these boys were ten times better than all those supposedly blessed others who ate from the king's table. God gives Daniel understanding and visions and dreams. In fact, in verse 21, it may seem like a a random comment that he lives until the reign of Cyrus. But what Daniel's telling us is that God gave Daniel a long life. Daniel was 15 years old when he was exiled in 605 B.C., and Daniel lives into the Persian Empire, which takes over Babylon in 539 B.C. You do the math, Daniel lived over 85 years. What we're learning about Daniel's life is that as a young man, he was uncompromising in chapter 1. And as an old man thrown into a lion's den, Daniel was still just as uncompromising. From start to finish, he trusted God in a troubled time. Now let's just briefly consider two applications as we close. The first being this. As believers, we need to learn how to live in a foreign land. We live in a culture that rejects what God calls us to obey and it celebrates what God calls us to run away from. And given this tension, we may be tempted, on the one hand, maybe like the early monastics, just to flee the world. Just dig a hole, whatever your hole is. Maybe that's Wyoming, Alaska. Just, just go off the grid. I'm going to find a place where I never have to see those sinners again. That's going to show them. Well, 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 not exactly, because sin is everywhere you are. Sin goes everywhere your sinful heart goes. You'll just be stuck with it in that hole. You you can't solve this issue that way. Second, Christ died to fulfill a great plan of salvation, which he commissioned his people to be engaged with to all the nations. Living in a Christian bubble is not the way to fulfill the Great Commission. And yet we don't do the opposite either. Daniel didn't go full-on culture warrior and aiming to use his position to legislate Judaism across all of Babylon. No, he didn't do that. When Jesus returns, he will not need our help taking back this world. Daniel threaded the needle. Daniel endured much cultural assimilation. He lived and worked and studied and prayed right in the thick of it. He impacted the world, and yet by allegiance to God's word, he knew where to draw the line. Second is that we need to learn how to be uncompromising in trying times. Difficult circumstances do come. And difficult circumstances have a tendency to either drive you to question God or they drive you to trust God. We won't discount the weight of trials and hardship. We ought not. We should not. We will not. But the real tragedy in life would be to let difficulty distance you from the only one that could actually help you. You need Christ. When hardship comes, go to Jesus. Remain faithful to him. He knows how to care for his people. And so in some this morning, are you committed to Christ? Will you trust him even in a troubled time? Remember that gospel word that you don't have to be a Daniel first for God to save you. That's not how salvation works. No, Christ came to save sinners. But that same Christ transforms those sinners into courageous men and women that shine his mercy to this world through uncompromising lives. Let's pray. Father, we do need you. And we thank you that you have come to save. You have come to deliver. Lord, we thank you that even in Daniel 1, we can see that you are the hero of the story. We're reminded in this passage that you are a sovereign God who is working all things according to the counsel of your will. And Lord, that you may even use our trouble to bring mercy to others, and so help us to be uncompromising in the conflict. Lord, help us to be faithful to your word, to to put forward our risen Savior to this world. God, we pray this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.